Hey, so let me start with a question this morning. How many of you are here and you're tired? Let's see some hands. Yeah, this springing forward thing, it's not for sissies, is it? I mean, it's, it's the real deal. And I tell you, uh, the news isn't good. As you get older, uh, it just gets, you know, faster and faster. The pace of life just seems to accelerate. I mean, we think things are going to slow down, but they almost never do. Let me give you some examples of that. When I was growing up in Huntington, West Virginia in the 1970s, there was a new kind of restaurant that came to town. In fact, these restaurants started springing up all over America. It was a restaurant that for the first time in human history sold food not on the basis of its quality or its price, but based on how quickly they could get it to you. In fact, it was called fast food. So that people could eat in their cars and vans as God himself intended, right? Uh, In the 90s, when I was starting a family and my children were little, Domino's became the number one seller of pizza in the United States when they guaranteed delivery within 30 minutes. And in fact, their slogan at the time was, uh, their slogan was this, we don't sell pizza, we sell delivery. And if you've ever had a Domino's pizza, you know that's true, right? (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. Don't boo or hiss. Today, when we purchase things like phones or computers or even cars, we do this based on one, one primary factor, right? And that's speed. In our culture, make no mistake about it, fast as king, we try to cram more and more activities into less and less time. In fact, Richard Swanson says this. He says, we send packages by Federal Express. We use telephones from Sprint. We manage our finances on Quicken. We diet with SlimFast. We swim in trunks made by Speedo. And we drive on expressways. So this desire to cram more and more into less and less, it's in us. And to demonstrate this, I just want to uh, see how well you guys can uh, use this vocabulary. So I'm going to say a sentence, and I want you guys to finish it for me. Ian, you may as well because you got nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. All right, so I'm at the end of my, well done. My life is falling, well done. I'm at my wits. I'm really stressed Yes, good. I, I'm ready to throw in the... Man, you guys are like really good at this. You're like professionally stressed out. That's awesome. Well done. But I've got good news for you this morning. There is rest available to you today, and his name is Jesus. You know, the author of Hebrews has been urging us throughout the book to go all the way with Jesus. And if you're going to go all the way, if you're going to go with Jesus for the long haul, you're going to have to know how to find rest in him. Now, you know this, but rest is big business in our society. I mean, everybody recognizes how important rest is. In fact, healthcare professionals have traced a lack of rest to billions of dollars in medical conditions. A CNN study released a few years back showed that those who work 11-hour days versus 8-hour days are 250% more likely to get depressed. We know that um, 
overwork stresses family dynamics, right? I mean, a lot of men aren't bad fathers because they're bad guys. They're bad fathers because they have to expend so much energy and effort in their job that there's just no energy or, uh, left over when they walk through the door. And there's a couple of reasons why we're so hard-pressed to work. Now, one is that work is how we provide for ourselves, right? It's, so in other words, if I want to uh, if I want to, I'm going to work hard so that I can have more and do more. Uh, and I get that. But here's the thing. Uh, there's more to it than that. Work for most of us, and this starts to really get deep, is the source of our identity. It's how we validate ourselves. It's how we demonstrate our work worth. So think about it this way. What's the first question you ask somebody when you meet them? After you've heard their name, you say, hey, what do you do for a living, right? And because we know that people sometimes judge us based on what we do, we're always trying to demonstrate how important we are, how uh, vital it is that we, we work, right? So we tend to look for uh, validation in our work. So a few years back, I saw a Wall Street Journal article that said that most of us actually inflate the number of hours that we work because it, it, of how important that makes us feel. So in, in essence, what we're telling people is, you know, I drip with so much awesomeness that my job needs me there 60 hours a week. I mean, they couldn't get by without my contribution, right? And sometimes we overwork because we're just trying to please other people. We don't want to let anybody down. So you've got to answer that email. You've got to return that phone call. So some of us are attached to our phones like they're IVs. Now listen, the gospel offers rest from all of this. The good news of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now according to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the proof that we found the gospel in our lives is that our lives are characterized by kind of a profound rest. Verse 3 says, for we who have believed have entered that rest. Believed what? Believe the good news of Jesus centered our lives on his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. So I want to talk about, to help us get our arms around this idea of Sabbath rest and what the author means when he says there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So I want to talk about the progression of Sabbath uh, in, just through, through the Scripture. So the Sabbath under the Old Covenant was a command to stop and take a day off each week as a way of honoring and remembering God. In fact, many of you know this. This was one of the Ten Commandments. And the word Sabbath literally means to cease or to stop or to pause. So the idea is you're setting aside a day of the week where you're pausing to center your life on God. So one of the purposes of a Sabbath under the Old co uh, Covenant was not just to rest from their primary pursuits in life, but to remind God's people that Sabbath was why they were alive. In other words, it was to remind them that they weren't created for work, they were created for God. 
And there's a big, big difference. But there was a problem that rose up as it related to uh, this command to take a Sabbath. Because the Old Testament wasn't very specific about what constituted work. So the Old Testament said very clearly that it was wrong to kindle a fire for cooking, that it was wrong to gather fuel, that it was wrong to carry burdens, or that it was wrong to transact business on the Sabbath day. But because of the lack of specificity, Jewish tradition actually went way further and they actually identified 39 different very specific acts that were strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. In short, the Sabbath, which Jesus said was meant to, uh, for man and not man for the Sabbath, the Sabbath had become this crushing burden in Jesus' day. It was so complex and there were all these rules of things you could and couldn't do on that day, so much so that it just became a religious burden. So the Sabbath was there to remind them that God was at the center, but it also was there to remind them that God was their provider. See, when God commanded the nation of Israel to take a day off, there, look, there were people that objected. I mean, crops had to be harvested every day. Water had to be carried in every day. They didn't have faucets, you know, that they could just turn on. Times were tight. Providing for yourself and your family was hard. So to cut your productivity by one-seventh, um, you know, didn't seem like a good idea. But God commanded them to do it because he wanted them to leave space for him to provide for them. He promised that if they would work six days and take a day off on the seventh, that he would multiply their effectiveness on, on the, other, uh, you know, the other six days. Um, and so God did not want the nation of Israel. Sabbath was an opportunity for them to remember their dependence on him in an agricultural culture. And then Jesus came along and he completely reframed the idea of Sabbath. I want to read you some amazing words that Jesus spoke. And these words were spoken in the context of Sabbath. Uh, from the indication of Scripture, probably on the Sabbath day. And here's what he said. He said, come to me, all who are weary and I will give you rest. And, uh, and in fact, not only does the context indicate that Jesus said this on a Sabbath, but in the same context, he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, there's a couple of ways you can interpret that. Number one, he's greater than the Sabbath, or literally, he is the Lord of rest. He's the Lord of rest. Uh, so either way, Jesus is saying, look, I'm greater than a Sabbath day. And so here's what Jesus, the seed that Jesus is beginning to plant. Don't simply settle for trying to find your rest in a certain day of the week. Come to me for it. And Paul picks up on this idea in the book of Colossians. In fact, we'll look at this verse together. Uh, check it out. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. And here's what Paul said. Therefore, 
Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. This is Jewish terminology, Jewish language. A Jewish festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. In other words, he's saying, look, don't let somebody else judge you about whether you keep a Sabbath day or not. Because that, that was just the surface. Look what he goes on to say. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, in other words, let's focus on a Sabbath day. He's saying the reality of a Sabbath is found in Christ. And this is incredible news because it means that we don't have to wait for a certain day of the week to find our rest but that the rest of Jesus is available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And here's why that matters so much. We just need to get real about this. You know, life is not going to slow down. I mean, we think it will, but it won't. We say, hey, this is my breathe-out day, but you all know this. The universe doesn't care if it's your breathe-out day or not. Crises still happen. Things still roll into our lives that we have to deal with, right? So this rest is always accessible. We don't have to wait for a certain day to live in it. So what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is I really want to describe what it means that Jesus Christ is our rest. And the very first thing that means is that Christ is my righteousness. He is my peace with God. He is my acceptance from God. Uh, And that means that he views us Um, that he really accepts us, that we have the security of knowing God because of Jesus. Now, you know this, but we often use work as an opportunity, we said this earlier, right, to validate ourselves, to justify ourselves, to demonstrate our worth. But through the gospel, we don't need to do that, right? Because Christ came, he bled, he suffered, he died for me to demonstrate my worth, to, to demonstrate my value to him. So we're meant to find our identity in Jesus, not in our work. Isn't that so much pressure to put on your job to try to rest the weight of your entire identity on your job? But this is the reason that so many of us overwork, because we're trying to wring too much from that and not enough from Jesus. We're constantly fighting to prove ourselves and feel good about ourselves, but because of Jesus, and and we just have to admit, right, isn't that exhausting? Isn't it exhausting always trying to prove yourself to other people? Listen to me, in Christ, you are a son you are a daughter. In Christ, you are dearly and deeply loved. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. There is no higher privilege, no higher calling in this life than that. You belong to him. You are a citizen of heaven. His eyes are fixed on you. You are the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. And I could go on and on and on, but friends, those are the things that we are meant to find our identity in, not our work. 
The gospel would say this, you are held in highest regard by the highest being in the universe. I mean, this is incredible stuff. You know, psychologists say that, that the three biggest needs that human beings have are to feel clean, and I mean by clean, I mean morally, moral, and to feel safe and to be significant. And Christ provides all of that. I mean, this inner turmoil, right? This lack of inner rest. Uh, in, a, in a few minutes, the author is going to call this kind of an inner nakedness, is what causes so much of our anxiety and desire to control. So, number three, Christ is also my security and my provision. He's my security. So you can rest because you know that there is a Father, a Heavenly Father, who bears the weight of the responsibility for providing for you. See, that doesn't just land in your lap. It's not something you have to manipulate or completely orchestrate. And He's promised to do that if you seek Him first. And listen, it is so freeing. When we can finally resign as the CEO of the universe, it's so freeing. Because you know, it is utterly exhausting trying to control everyone and everything in your life. And so it's so freeing when you, when you give that back to God and let him do that so well. You know, he is perfectly capable and there's nobody that, and he's perfectly good and there's nobody that loves you like he does. And so you can cast that on him. So what I'm telling you is that Jesus offers us rest from worry and anxiety. Because if you know that he's good and you know that he loves you, you don't have to own all that trouble. It doesn't all land in your lap. You can cast it, Peter says, on him. And then it's so interesting, he's talking about rest, and then there's a shift in the, uh, in the language, and he begins to, in fact, let's kind of look at it together. We'll look, at, start in verse uh, 9. He says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so what he's hearkening back to is that same story we looked at last week in Hebrews 3 where the people of God rebelled against God and tried to overthrow the leaders that God had put in place and put their own leaders in. He refers to that as the disobedience of the Word of God. So now he's going to begin to talk about God's Word and why obedience and rest are so closely connected in God's Word. And here's how he says that. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What he's saying here is he's saying, look, the Word of God, is it's not just dead uh, old words on a page. It's living and it's active. It's active in the same way that when you throw a little yeast into a loaf of bread, it completely changes and transforms that loaf of bread. I mean, when you want to get rid of cancer, right, that's going to require uh, cutting that out of your body. And this is one of the reasons he refers to the Word of God as a double-edged sword capable of of piercing deep because God wants to cut out 
anything out of you and out of me that would interfere with us entering into his rest. And only the word of God can diagnose what that is. So he's saying, look, it's so important that you... uh, uh, you know, allow the Word of God to discern or judge or transform the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. This is why one of our core values is this. Here's the way that we articulate it. We say, we will stay centered on God's Word by holding the Bible above us as our authority as we help everyone understand and apply it. Now, listen, there are a lot of books in the world, but there are no books. There is nothing in the world like this book. This book makes claims for itself that no other book in the world makes. And uh, this book so defined the nation of Israel, you know what they called themselves? They called themselves simply the people of the book. Other nations were known for other things, maybe their power or their armies or their ingenuity or their uh, tourist, you know, uh, attractions, their monuments, whatever. Israel wasn't known for any of that. They wanted to be known as a people of the book. And to help his or her child learn the book was every parent's greatest responsibility in Jerusalem. To be able to grow up and teach this book, to become a rabbi, that was the greatest ambition that a Jewish man could have. And one day, a rabbi named Jesus came into the world, and he loved this book. The first time we see him as a boy, he's at the temple, and we're told that he's talking with and teaching with the rabbis about the book. The first time we see him as an adult, he is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and Satan tempts him three times. And in every single temptation, do you know what Jesus does? He quotes from the book. He's just so immersed in it. The next time we see him, he's beginning his ministry. He's going into a local synagogue, and he quotes from the book. The last day of his life, he's hanging on a cross, going through intense agony, all this turmoil. And uh, you know what he says? He, uh, he says, Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting from the book. That's Psalms chapter 22. And it's one of the last phrases that Jesus uh, ever uttered was a quote of Scripture. The, the rabbis used to say this about the Old Testament. They would say, read the book, know the book, love the book, do the book, live the book, die the book. And that's what Jesus did. He died with this book on his lips. This is why James chapter 1 verse 22 uh, says what it does. Listen to this. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. He's saying, look, whatever God speaks you need to do because that disobedience could keep you from the rest of God. And James says it this way, uh, uh, but don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. And here's why this is so important to understand. 
Here's what can happen when people sit in a seat in a church service. They can begin to think that because they heard something new, that they learned something new, that they're somehow better men and women for it. And that is false. The Word of God is not meant just primarily for information. It's meant for transformation. And that means that if you learn something new, but then you don't go home and do what you just learned, James says, look, you're deceiving yourself. You think you're becoming more spiritual because you learned a fact, but the Bible isn't about learning facts. It's about shaping and changing lives. It's living. It's active. It's transformative. See, when it comes to the Bible, friends, application is everything. Doing is what matters, not just hearing or knowing. Now listen, fair game. Okay, I go on a rant about once a year, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on my rant again. And you've probably heard me go on this rant if you've been here in about a year, 12 to 18 months, but you need, you need me to go on this. Maybe I just need me to go on this rant uh, every 12 or 18 months, but I think it's so important, and it's this. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll go, Pastor, and by the way, since I've been, gone on this rant so much, people are doing this less and less. But they'll come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, I just want to go deep, like in the Bible. And when they say that, what they mean is, I want to learn a bunch of new stuff. Like, I want a Bible study that's deep and will teach me new stuff. And, and again, they mean they want more information. But the Bible isn't about giving you just more information. The Bible is about transformation, see? It's meant to be applied to your life. So I want to redefine what deep means. Deep Bible study happens, husbands, when you love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's deep. Deep happens, wives, when you respect and honor your husbands. That's deep. Deep happens when believers that have said cross words to one another forgive one another. Listen to me, there is nothing deeper than forgiveness. Because forgiveness is at the epicenter of the cross. At the epicenter of the cross is God's forgiveness of our sin. My sin, your sin, our sin. There is nothing more important to your life than forgiveness. Nothing. That is so deep. It's deep, friends, when we bear with one another. It's deep when we go out and serve people in our community. That's deep Bible study. Deep is doing. Deep is not just knowing. And we've got to get that right because James says it's easy to get deceived about what really matters. You know, one of my old seminary professors when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, he would say this, and, and it's so good, I'm going to say it twice, and you know what, I'm not even going to charge you extra for the second time I say it, but it's that good. It's that good. Are you ready? He would say this, most Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. 
most Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. This is why the author of Hebrews is saying, look, don't let disobedience to the Word of God keep you from God's rest, keep you from all that God has for you and would do in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and in your life if you just live yielded to Him. And here's what's so amazing. This is so cool. Check out this last uh, verse. Uh, so it talks about the Word of God. And then it says in verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And I love this phrase because he talks about being naked. And you can think back to Genesis 1, right? Adam and Eve, when God created them, they were naked in the garden. And they, there was no shame in that. There was no guilt. But when sin entered their lives, as sin has entered all of our lives, that all changed, right? And then suddenly uh, nakedness implied shame and, and guilt and the need to cover up the need to hide you know, from other people and from God because that's what Adam and Eve had to do in the garden. And so what he's saying is, look, the gospel tells you that you can be naked before God and you don't have to feel guilt, you don't have to feel shame because of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has covered you in and with his righteousness. And there is incredible rest in that. There is incredible peace in that. This is why I never cease to marvel at the gospel. I just never do. Because of Christ, we don't have to feel shame even for a moment, even though he sees us and knows us for who and what we really are. Because you know what he does with that knowledge? He uses his word and he does surgery to take out anything that would keep us from his rest. So will you let him do that this week? So let me ask you a question. Where in your life do you need to better apply the word of God to your life? Where do you need to be more obedient? Where do you need to stop being disobedient? Because if you're here this morning and your life is characterized by disobedience, you are missing God's rest you're missing all that he has for you. You're missing all that he wants to do in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and in your life. God wants better for you than you are getting from life right now. So will you change your mind? Will you begin to live your life obedient, obeying, applying God's word to your life. I pray that you will. In fact, I'm going to invite our team to come up, and while they're coming up, I'm going to pray for you. Let's, let me just pray as a, as a pastor for each one of you guys. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for the men and women, the teenagers, the children in this room. God, I pray that they would not miss one thing that you have for them that every one of them would be able to enter into your rest because of their surrender, because of their willingness to say yes to you, because of their desire to apply the word of God to their one and only lives. 
And so God, help them live well with you. Help them know you. Help them know all of your promises. Help them know the fulfillment of every single one of those in their lives. Would you bless them? Just as we sang earlier today, God, would you bless them, all of those that would have the humility to obey to allow you to remove anything that would get in the way of what you want to do in our hearts, minds, and lives. We ask and pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, so we're going to respond um, with praise. We're going to get a little rowdy, but I want to say as we're getting rowdy, I want to say this. It's so important, you know, that we be dialed in to the words that we're singing, that we be focused on what we're doing, which is worshiping our Savior and our God. And there's lots of ways to worship God. Some of you might want to worship God with an offering. Some of you might want to worship God with a prayer. Others of you might want to worship God by maybe you've gotten crossways with somebody else here in this room. The Bible says the ultimate act of worship is to walk across the room and to ask forgiveness. I don't know. However you need to respond to God, let's do that. Whether it's just engaged in what we're singing, whether it's um, receiving prayer, whether it's bringing an offering, let's stand and sing to Him together.